A conversation point that I hear a lot about queerness and today is that everybody's coming out. Mm -hmm. Is everybody coming out, Maya? The overarching answer is no. What's up, lovely humans? Hello, beautiful people. This is your host, Yancy, and you are listening to That Exciting the Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about gender labels and identity. I don't know if it's just me, but my feed over 2021 was bombarded with dialogue around gender, around identity, and especially around the difference in sex and gender. I do have to say, though, that I follow a lot of diverse diverse pages on sexuality so that that probably has an impact on it but I'm, i'd be curious to know if for you last year this has been a conversation that you've witnessed that you were a part of that you read about let me know at that's exciting dash on twitter or at me on instagram at that's exciting i'd be super curious to hear you on that this is a topic that i'm discovering and that i'm new at navigating and the best person to have that conversation with is is my friend Maya. Maya is an intimacy educator on Instagram who has spent over five years studying what society teaches us about pleasure and intimacy and what individual people actually need to increase their pleasure and intimacy in their lives, especially during those early stages of intimate relationships. She also researches topics such as sex education, marriage, domestic violence, communal intimacy, and Black women's pleasure as a PhD student in one of the US top sociology programs and previously as a gender and sexuality study majors. So today, Maya and I are challenging the binary. You'll get to know what that is in the episode if you're unfamiliar with that. And also everything that has been talked about in the episode is in the description. So if you want to read, if you want to get to know more about the topic, well, you've got information. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Well, hi, Maya. Hi, Auntie. We did have a conversation about labels and gender earlier this year, so I'm happy I can bring this topic on the podcast and share it with people. I'm glad to be here. I think this will be fun. So starting question I ask my guest is, what are some common sexual green flags that you've heard in your practice and in your research? For the new listeners, sexual green flags are indicators that you'll have pleasurable, consensual, and safe sex. I was thinking about engaging in sexual acts that aren't penetration. I think that's a pretty big one, um, especially for people with vulvas or socialized as women. Also like engaging in like sensual touch. So like it's not sex, how, whatever you define sex as, but like you're doing things beforehand, like maybe massages and that kind of stuff. I'm a big fan of that. Also like when people are asking questions about like, what do you think about this? What's off limits for you today? Do you want me to add more pressure here? That kind of stuff, just like being curious about my pleasure or about the pleasure of the people that they're having sex with, I think is a big green flag for me. Curiosity goes a long way. Mm -hmm. It's a big turn on. Mm -hmm. I know for me, that's a big sexual green flag. It's a testament to how you're just curious about my body and that you want to explore and create something together. Not necessarily, hey, I'm going to show you what I know. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's less performative. And, you know, some people do want to have performative sex. Like the thought of sex being performative is like a turn on for them. But at least for myself, and I think a lot of other people too, like having sex that's about like connecting with another person, I think is 
really high up there as well. So when you're being curious, you're asking those questions, like you're trying to do better and explore. I just feel like that's so much fun. Cause I feel like for me, one of the number one reasons like why people have sex is like to explore other people and to create connections. So I think the questions, yeah, big one. So to dive right in today's topic, a conversation point that I hear a lot about queerness and today is that everybody's coming out. Mm-hmm. Is everybody coming out, Maya? The overarching answer is no. More people are coming out and I brought statistics to show that. But this notion that everybody is queer or everybody identifies as something that's not straight or cis is just not true. So at least in the US, only 5% or 5.6% of the population identifies as LGBT, which is a lot higher than it was even just five years ago. Five years ago, it was 3.9% of the population. So that's a pretty big increase in just five years years. But uh, yeah, this notion that like everybody is gay, everyone's coming out, like 5.6% of the population is just not true. Right. I think it goes with representation that we have in the media. There's more representation. You can find your community more easily with the internet, with all the social medias, TikToks, Instagram and all that stuff. So some of it is based off of the generation that you're a part of. Um, because it's funny, I was talking with my girlfriend about this and she was like, really 5.6? That feels kind of low. And what we realized is because she's technically like a millennial, I'm kind of like on the cusp of millennials and Gen Zs. And so the percentage of millennials that identify as LGBT is like nine point something percent. Whereas for Gen Z, it's over 11%. Actually, is it 11%? Let me make sure. Gen Z, no, 15.9% of Gen Z identifies as LGBT. So because of our age, we are encountering more and more people uh, who are in the community. Whereas someone who's like in the baby boomer generation, the statistic for baby boomers is only 2% of baby boomers identify as LGBT. So I do think it's an age thing, whereas if you're older, you're going to be less likely to encounter queer people. And if you're younger, you'll be encountering queer people more just like based off of the stats. So I think that is one part of it. Not everybody resonates with the 5.6% because of their age. And then we can also break it down by gender and race. And that kind of shifts things too. So I think it has more to do with like the age, the race, the gender that you identify as. And then of course, media representation and things like that are increasing too. For the baby boomers, is it because less people are outspoken about maybe their sexuality or studies have not maybe been conducted on the topic? Yeah, I I, I love this question because it helps me get into one of the things that I'm I, I really like to emphasize to people. All of the studies that we have for the most part, are just about the percentage of people that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or transgender. That's really it. So we're not having many studies that are capturing people who are engaging in any form of queer sex or any form of queer gender presentation or experience. So there are a lot of people, we don't know the exact numbers again, because it's really hard to measure, like get someone to answer a survey to say like, yes, I identify as straight, but yes, I've also had sex with people of the same sex Mm -hmm. or whatever. It's hard to get people to be honest about that on a survey. So it's hard to actually know the estimates. So these numbers and those stats that I just presented, they don't capture people who identify as straight but have queer sex often or sometimes or whatever. Because of that, I do think that there are most likely more people a part of the baby boomer generation who have engaged in queer sex or do engage in queer sex or desire, but they're not identifying as a part of the queer community. And that, of course, has to do with the fact that it was less safe to do that when they were coming of age, um, less accepted, less representation to even understand that that was an experience that they were having or that there was language around that. Was the AIDS epidemic 
pandemic a part of why there's not a high percentage? Yeah. So baby boomer and Gen X, I'm pretty sure um, were affected by uh, the AIDS epidemic. I don't have exact time points on that, but I think it affected both. And so unfortunately, that also means that quite a few queer members of those generations were killed by the AIDS epidemic and the world, but specifically the U.S.'s mishandling of that epidemic. Well, not even mishandling, just fully ignoring it for very long. So that also adds to these numbers that we'd have more queer people alive if the U.S. government at least cared that people were dying from this and did something about it sooner than they did. I'm not so familiar with the history around AIDS and HIV, but this is definitely something that I'm grasping more information on and that I would like to have an episode about in the near future. About labels, there's two trains of thought that I've encountered. So the first one would be that labels are important for a sense of community, for a sense of identity. And the next definition would be that labels are kind of annoying because there are categories of subcategories of sub subcategories. You know, you get the gists. So what are labels and why are they important? Or why are they not? Yeah. So like you said, there are two kinds of camps to this. And like you said, there's the one camp that's like labels are good. And beyond just the fact that they are ways that we can form community with each other and then engage in like political action around a shared identity, they also are necessary to a certain extent for like human cognition. So if we didn't have any labels for anything in the world, it would be very hard to kind of go from like an infant to an adult who understands what's going on in the world. So when we use language to label things, we are communicating in a shared way, but we're also simplifying things, right? So it's like we have the word tree, for example, that's helpful to know like generally what a tree is. But as you know, there's all different kinds of trees. There's tiny trees that you can have on your desk and huge trees and things like that. So when we say the word tree, we're glossing over some of that complexity, but it's helpful for us to just have like a shared reference point. And so I think it's similar when it comes to sexuality and gender labels as well. It helps us have shared language, but we're, sh- we're kind of like glossing over some of the nuance and complexity that is there for people. So that's one thing I, I like to think about. There's also like within queer theory, which is very interesting kind of strain of thought that I love reading, but it can be really hard to read, especially this one theorist whose name is Judith Butler kind of argues that like, Anytime we create a label, we're going to be putting up a boundary between who's in the group and who's not in the group. And historically, that boundary is excluding people who are the most marginalized. And so every time we put up a boundary around like an identity label, we're kind of engaging in this exclusionary work. Um, that really kind of doesn't serve people who need a sense of community. So there are some people who from that train of thought are like, yeah, like, let's try to get rid of those things, especially as it pertains to like human identities. So there's a lot of complexity there. And I think the last thing I'll say, because um, you were like, well, there's like the subgroup within the subgroup within the subgroup. Yeah. Some people think that's like a terrible thing. And it's really annoying that this is happening within the queer community that we have all of like this proliferate proliferation of different labels and things like that. But the way I personally see it is that human languages have always evolved. They've 
always gained new words for things. We've gotten rid of words over time. Every language has gone through this process where there were words that people used in the 1800s that we don't use them now because we've gained other kinds of words. And it's really interesting to me because people really like to knock the queer community and I'd also say the black community for like playing with words and playing with language and creating new kinds of words and labels. But it's like, that's literally like what people have done forever is create new words and evolve the way that we speak and communicate. So I do like to highlight that this is a normal thing that happens. And so it's a little suspect that typically these critiques come up specifically for queer people and black people. That's what I, I say. I, that's what I say about the whole subgroup thing. For you, Yancy, like, did you have a bit of a journey to get used to this kind of language? And like, what did that look like for you? Or did you kind of just like grow up with this kind of language? So I didn't grow up with that kind of language. I had to lead with curiosity because I saw myself as being stubborn with changing my current vocabulary. I had to learn. I had to learn and ask questions and also do my own research and not expect people to explain their identities Doing your research goes a long way and just asking people, hey, can I ask questions about your identity or can I ask questions about, you know, how you identify? My friend did that. My friend said, hey, can I ask you a question about your sexuality? Yeah. <laughs> I can see this smirk on your face. You're like, wait, Yancy, you just said two things that are really con contradictory. Contra con that's a contradiction. So let me bring more nuance to what I was trying to say. Let's break it down first. The first part, accountability. I absolutely am guilty of having been stubborn about changing my vocabulary. And I think this is a friction that many people can have when their views are challenged and where they're presented with new concepts. So, yep, definitely have been guilty of that. And now I try to approach life with a beginner mindset. So I know that I don't know everything and I lead with curiosity. I also lead with love and I try to understand people's points of view. And it's also failing forward. Sometimes I'll make mistakes and it's being accountable for those mistakes, learning and moving on. Life continues. Now, now the second part, people's experiences and entitlement. This is tricky and I'm still navigating this area, but I'll tell you where I'm at right now. I think as humans, we are curious beings. We are curious about people's experiences and we oftentimes create bonds over sharing experiences, sharing identities, sharing cultures, sharing sharing differences. So for me, I feel there's nothing wrong with inquiring about people's experiences as long as it's prefaced with consent and as long as people use their, you know, common sense, context, and it's done in a respectful manner. So for instance, my friend, the way she approached me was great. She said, hey, Yancy, like, can I ask you about your sexuality? I said, yes. And she asked me her question and I answered. But what we need to remember is that we're not entitled to people's experience, explanation, justification of any sorts. If they don't want to talk about something, no is a complete answer. Furthermore, it's important to keep in mind that one person is not the representative of their whole community and that there's resources at the tip of your fingers to educate yourself google libraries youtube just make sure that you fact check and that you double check but you got a lot to wrap this up i think humans are curious beings and for me it's okay as long as it's prefaced with consent common sense and context some people disagree some people might agree but that's where i'm at today
Yes, I think that's huge because sometimes people don't want to go through the exercise of explaining themselves. You know, they they just don't want to do that on any given day, or maybe they don't even actually know how to answer the question. And so having to try to explain that to someone else when they can't even answer it for themselves, like really produces a lot of stress and anxiety. So I do think that like asking in advance is a really good idea. And just because like, especially if you're asking a friend, like just because they say no one day, maybe they'll want to talk about it another day when they're in a different kind of headspace. But I would say be especially wary of like asking strangers or people that you're first meeting because they don't really owe you anything. And so, like you said, there's that level of entitlement, like prove yourself to me. Like, who are you? What are you? Tell me. What's in your pants? Yeah, yeah. There's a weird thing with some people in this trade community with transness and just what's in your pants. Right. And there's this fixation on body parts. Do you know why that is? Yeah. So there's this phrase, um, biological essentialism. People will look at someone's biology and whatever they feel like their biology signifies about their identity, that is who that person is. So this happens with with sex and gender all the time because people will look at a person like you know the whole sex assigned at birth thing your biology is like the essence of you essentially and this has gone like really really problematically when it comes to race and gender as well where in the past and unfortunately still today but less so scientists have looked at the biology of black people the 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 size of their skulls or of their brains and They've looked at the hormonal levels of women, cis women specifically, and they point to those things to say, see, this is why Black people aren't smart. And see, this is why women are really emotional. Because Black people aren't smart, because women are really emotional, they should not be like allowed access to certain kinds of rational intellectual spaces. But yeah, so essentially that's where that comes from is because for some reason, people feel like our biology indicates who we are if we hop back on uh gender norms how so coming up let's say if we think about a boy and a girl how would that come up specifically like for the body or just like gender norms and behavior and things like that gender norms and behaviors what is also interesting about this is that the answer to this question will vary um depending on what country you live in also if we take a historical look at this the definitions of being like a good proper boy and a good proper girl have actually changed over time, which again proves my point that nothing about this is inevitable or natural, that it's all kind of depends on the culture you live in. But um, I would say right now, some of the, the expectations that we have of boys is that they're not emotional, that they are physically assertive, intellectually assertive, rational, kind of logical, reasonable, things like that. Whereas some of the things that we kind of expect of women, and again, I'm talking about, you know, people who are socialized as men and women, um, not so much about like biological characteristics, um, emotional, of course, weak, passive, subservient. Would you say caregivers as well? Yes, caregivers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the female having characteristics or women having characteristics that are caring and about propping up the pursuits of the man. If I was going to summarize it in one sentence, that's what I would say. Is it the same uh, for you guys in Montreal, would you say? Would you describe it like that? I think it's the same. I think, uh, like, girls are still getting ovens and are happy about getting ovens and learning how to cook and having baby toys. I was listening to a podcast, See The Thing Is, they were saying that you're basically groomed to take care of people. 
I mean, think about it. Think about being a little girl. Like, you were given dolls. You were being prepared. You were being groomed for motherhood as a kid. Oh, and little boys were I... given toy cars and G.I. Joes to learn how to fight. I had a whole Easy Bake. This is an Easy you Bake were, you oven. You were going to make Why me Why were you cook? domesticating me at six? <laughs> Wait, I never thought of that. You're conditioned to like pink and like dresses and oh no, don't play in the mud with your dress. While boys, they'll fight, they'll they'll get dirty, they'll, you know. Girls are also groomed to be attracted to men too. So it's not even just a gender thing, it's a sexuality thing too. Conservative-minded people will say like, oh, queerness is being like shoved down our throats these days. But it's really just like actually the opposite. In fact, that when you don't have as many representations of queer people, and luckily this is changing, when you are literally a little infant boy and you're put, wearing a shirt that says ladies man right before you have even spoken those kinds of clothes you know and there are shirts like that for baby infant girls too when you're wearing clothes like that that's literally grooming a child to be straight um, or to be attracted to the opposite sex. Why is it okay for a child to know that they like the opposite sex at five? But it's questionable when there's queer representation at that age. So it's really interesting when you think about this. And this kind of goes back to the, my point. I guess this is like the point I'm like honing in on. But that, you know, none of this stuff is natural. Because if it was natural, we wouldn't have to constantly encourage people to do it. We wouldn't have to put babies in these shirts. We wouldn't have to pass laws you know, kind of getting rid of the nuance that exists in gender. We wouldn't have to do all of these things. We wouldn't have to like say oppressive comments towards women. We wouldn't have to do these things if it was actually natural for all people with vulvas to be caring and to be feminine and to be all those things. We wouldn't have to do any of this if that was just what was naturally inevitably going to happen. But we do all of these things. We put all these rules in place. We have all of these like, you know, representations that are very kind of limited. We do all of that stuff because what we're trying to enforce on people is not natural. It's not natural to put people into you have to be attracted to the opposite sex. It's not natural to put people into you're either a man or a woman, you're either masculine or feminine. That's not a natural thing that is going to happen for most people. So yeah, when you really think about it, you're like, wow, like really these things are like imposed on us constantly at school and our families through law, all of this stuff. So it's really interesting. So I think we're now touching on the gender binary. Mm -hmm. It focuses on it's either you're a man or a woman. It's either you like women or you like men. There's no in between. It's black or white. And the other thing I'll add is that it's one or the other. And also the belief that these two categories are opposites. Would you say in the gender binary system, there's no place to have a part of femininity or a part of masculinity? It's either you're all or you're you're all. Yeah, that's how our belief is set up, is that if you have a penis, then you are a man and you are masculine and like all of those things like and, and then you're also attracted to femininity because that's the opposite of what you are. And so you need the opposite present in your life. It's like all of those things are just assumed to line up. But I read this fascinating research article that's like, not only is it the case that most people have a mix of masculine and feminine kind of personality, characteristics, behaviors, interests, etc. This is also true at the neurological level and the physiological level. So it's actually the case that most people have a mosaic of traditionally masculine and feminine like 
parts of their brain. So there's no one brain that only exhibit, or not no, but majority of brains exhibit some mixture of masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics. And that's also true in our psychology. So psychologically, there's typically some sort of mix of masculine and feminine characteristics. And so that comes out in our personalities, in our interests and things like that. And so most people will identify with the feminine binary if most of the characteristics that they have are are typically like coded as feminine. So that's how you identify as feminine, not because there is a complete absence of masculine characteristics within you, if that makes sense. You identify as feminine because unfortunately it's like you're either or, and that's the one you resonate with the most. And so you just pick that. But that again, back to our conversation about labels, it's helpful, you know, so that we can have kind of shorthand conversations, but then it also kind of covers up the fact that there's a lot of complexity under why people are identifying as feminine, why they resonate with femininity and what parts of masculinity they might resonate with as well. So most people, it's a mix and that's true all the way down to the neurological level, but we don't have a lot of language to talk about that. I don't want to kind of do the whole biological essentialism thing where it's like, just because your brain has this mosaic, you're going to like behave in a way that's an exact representation of the mosaic in your brain. Because of course, you know, if you were a kid and you were a girl and you were praised for doing well in school and all of those things, then chances are you're going to keep trying to do that. Whereas if you're a girl who's kind of diminished for doing well in school, chances are you might have a harder time continuing to do that. So there's all kinds of ways that like our biology and our neurology interact with the social experiences that we have. But I think it's really interesting to talk about the biological aspect though, because a lot of people don't see it like that. It's like, well, you either have a vagina or a penis. Which one is it? Okay, that kind of explains it. But when you go a little deeper, there's a lot more nuance there. When you think about most people that you've met, most of those people you would be like, okay, well, this is, yeah, they traditionally do all these like feminine things, but they also do this thing that like is traditionally thought of as masculine too. Like if you really think about it, it's not that surprising of a thing to think about. It's just that the gender binary makes us forget or like a loss over that kind of nuance. But do you feel like that's something you've experienced or for you, is it kind of just one over the other? I'd say it's not one or the other. I'd say it would vary from who I'm interacting with, let's say with friends, I'm really nurturing. I want them to feel good. I'm there to listen. And career-wise, I'm driven. I'm more assertive. I fight more for what I want, but I wouldn't do that with my friends, if it makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I would say I'm pretty similar. I feel like I have a mix too, but again, most people do if they're, if they're given the space to express that. Some people, you know, like we said, like if you are socialized as a girl, like the masculine is like almost beaten out of you. And for some boys, unfortunately, the femininity is actually beaten out of them. Sometimes that's like what happens when boys act in feminine ways, they'll be physically punished for that. So it's really not an exaggeration to say that um, certain personality characteristics and interests are beaten out of people, but then also, you know, it's more of a metaphor as well to just kind of say that like, we're punished verbally for certain behaviors and rewarded verbally for other behaviors. I feel like this world would be a much better place. We'd have a lot less people who were walking around with hurt if people were allowed to explore themselves more, especially at those earlier ages. 
I really do. Because when you're not able to do that at a young age, it's really hard to kind of recover from that. It's traumatic for many people. Sometimes, you know, people will take that out on other people, unfortunately, or sometimes people will just, you know, they'll be living a decreased version of the life that they really deserve. And that in and of itself is a shame. So it would be much a much better place, especially like kids, like kids are supposed to play and explore. That's the whole point, you know? People who believe in gender essentialism think that if you have a man, if you have a penis, I'm sorry, if you have a penis, you're a man. And if you have a vulva or vagina, you are a woman. What's the difference between gender and sex? Yeah. So if I were going to summarize it in a simplistic way, I would say that sex is a biologically based identity that is assigned to you at birth, typically by a medical doctor. So it's based off of biological characteristics, such as your chromosomes, hormonal levels, and genitalia. Whereas gender is a social identity. So gender is an identity that's not based in your biology, but it's based in the social group that you most resonate with when it comes to their experiences, their behaviors, and self-presentation. So one would be a social identity and the other one would be a biological identity. One could argue that men are more aggressive, men are more assertive, men are physically stronger, they have a higher level of testosterone, while women on the other side can be considered docile, are physically less strong, but carry babies, which is pretty ironic if you think about it. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so for them, sex and gender are biological. How does sociologists refute the physiognomy and hormonal argument? Yeah, so I want you to go on a little journey with me because I really want to make sure that I can make this clear. People treat you a certain way based off of your biology or how they perceive your biology to be, but you don't behave that way solely because of your biology. So this happens in a reward and punishment kind of system all throughout life, at school, at home, and at work. So let's take an example of a little male in his earliest stages of life. Because his family and preschool teachers know he's male, they reward him for exhibiting certain behaviors and at times punish him for exhibiting other behaviors. So for example, when this little boy is running around and being loud and being aggressive, teachers and parents are less likely to stop this behavior and are more likely to reward it by saying things like, wow, look at little Johnny go, boys will be boys. Isn't he just the cutest, right? Like these are things that happen. However, if the same boy exhibits behaviors that demonstrate domesticity or being emotional, such as playing with a toy stove, dressing up, crying. Teachers and parents are less likely to allow this behavior to continue and are more likely to move the kid away from these items, to discourage this kind of emotional expression, and to punish this kind of emotional expression and behavior by saying things like, all right, little Johnny, it's time to man up. Stop whining and crying before you make daddy really mad. So here you can see that if this boy, little Johnny, grows up to be an aggressive man, this is not just because there's so much testosterone just running through his body, forcing him to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. It's also a result of him trying to avoid receiving punishments for acting in a non-aggressive way and trying to maximize the amount of rewards he receives for exhibiting aggressive behavior. So it's kind of like he was molded into exhibiting these certain kinds of behaviors that are socially acceptable based off of his sex. So to say the same thing I said before, hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense now after this example. People treat you a certain way based off of your biology and how they perceive your biology and how they believe your biology should inform how you should behave. 
They treat you a certain way, which then makes it so that you mold and become um, one with a personality or with behaviors that is a reflection of that. It's not just because of your biology. So you behave the way you do in part because of how people treat you, not just because you have a certain hormonal level within your body. Maya, what would you have to say to people that think this is complicated, that it's way more simple if it's just men and women? Yeah, I would say that... In a way, it is more simple, but it's not necessarily more natural. And I think that's what I'm getting at here is that people have a whole diverse array of personality traits and physical capabilities. And that when we do this kind of binary approach to sex and gender and we force people into these boxes, maybe it's more simple for you to understand them, but it's not more simple to live like that. It's not more simple to force yourself to be, even if we're not talking about gender variant people, it's really not simple for a woman who doesn't really feel like she's a domestic person, it's not more simple for her to go through her life and feel like she has to be like that in order to be someone who's worthy of respect and love from men if that's what she's interested in. That's not simple. That's really hard to do when you have aggressive tendencies, even as a woman, if you're career oriented, if you're all of these things, it's not simple to just get rid of those tendencies and to try to force yourself to do and be something that you're not interested in doing and being. So I am someone who approaches the whole social world and how I think about this stuff through a lens of how can people live authentically and how can people live well and when we expand these definitions, it allows more people to live life on their own terms. Even if it's harder for other people to understand, that's not the number one thing that's most important for me. The number one thing that's most important is that people live this life in a way that feels good to them. There is this fear that you know, if you live authentically and that happens to not be what society has been encouraging you to do, you are afraid to do that for good reason because there are punishments that come with that sometimes if you behave in a way that people don't associate with your biology or that they just don't want you to behave like. It's totally fine if people are afraid or apprehensive at first or if this is just unsettling to people. But I mean, what's a life in, lived in fear, you know? Like life is much better if we are finding ways to love on each other and to connect with people as opposed to just living in fear and trying to force people to conform to something because of that fear. So it's okay to be a little nervous or uncomfortable with these topics. Like everybody can be a little nervous and uncomfortable when they're learning something for the first time, but hopefully you'll be able to kind of move beyond that and to begin to lead with love, curiosity, and community. Do you have any literature, podcasts, resources to recommend to the audience? Like I mentioned before, um, Planned Parenthood has a really great primer on the difference between sex and gender because it is kind of complicated. And so like if this conversation that we were having is kind of the first time that someone is hearing about this, it'll probably take them a few times of hearing it explained different ways, reading it different ways for it to click for them. So I think the Planned Parenthood one is very good. And then also for people who are interested in kind of these more like research theoretical articles, I do have two to recommend. So the first is called Becoming a Gendered Body, Practices of Preschools. And this was written by Karen Martin in the American Sociological Review. And that one essentially talks about like how what you're saying, like we're kind of groomed into being 
especially like gendered people at pre in preschool classrooms and like what that process looks like. And then this other article is called The Egg and the Sperm, How Science Has Constructed a Romance Based on Stereotypical Male-Female Roles. And that one's written by Emily Martin in the journal Science. And that one is kind of gets at what I was saying about how sex is also socially constructed. So it kind of shows you that like, again, the way that we talk about biology is not inevitable. So that one's really cool. And then if you're also interested in like stats, the percentage of LGBT people and how that's changing and stuff, at least in the US, because that's um, where I'm from, Gallup polls, they have a lot of interesting facts, um, more than I was even able to get into today, um, that can really help you see how things are changing and how we're probably going to see some really big jumps in the next five to 10 years. I'm not saying that from like a scientific perspective, I haven't like ran any tests. But just based off of my very basic reading of these things, I think we're going to see some pretty big jumps in the next five to 10 years. So be sure to follow my girl Maya at Intimacy with Maya, M-A-Y-A. She shares her knowledge and expertise on her platform and she is currently revamping her Instagram. So there's going to be new stuff in the upcoming year that are going to be great educational and it's really important. So thank you, Maya, for being on the platform and just thank you for everything that you do. We are blessed to have educators like you. So that's it for today's episode. Be sure to follow us at that's exciting on instagram and at that's exciting underscore on twitter in the meantime stay curious because that's exciting before we leave on production team recording editing and sound design by yours truly myself yancy big shout outs to lawrence from tgv productions for the help on content editing special thanks to jane p for her assistance on production the official that's exciting anthem by calder nash the amazing vocals on the track by Pacifico, some instrumentals and loops you hear throughout the episodes from Jude, aka Jude Experience. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Yancy, and until next week, stay curious because that's exciting. That's exciting, yeah.